The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Come up and bring God's word to it this morning. Excellent. Well, good morning to all of you and to all our guests this morning. How good was that? That was so enjoyable. Love baby dedications. Well, I'm really excited this morning. I've had my chai tea today, and so I'm ready to uh, explore this new series that we launched today that we kick off which was really on the theme of evangelism or, or witnessing, uh, sharing our faith with others. And as you're going to see in just a moment, this new series connects with the theme for the year, which is grow, growing in our vision of who God is, growing as disciples of Christ. And the third aspect is growing in our impact or influence. And so really this new series ties into that third part of the theme for the year. And so we've entitled this new series Intentional Witness. Intentional Witness. And so if you've got your Bibles... Please go ahead and find those and turn to a passage in the New Testament that absolutely floored me the first time I read it some 19 years ago. And still to this day, it gets me because it's such a big, weighty, important, significant text. And that passage is uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to jump in at verse 1 and read down to verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the passages and the verses will be on the screen for you. So Ephesians 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And, and, and God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, some passages in the Bible are worth committing to memory. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this word, and thank you for this morning. And I pray, Lord, that the truths of this incredible text would be communicated clearly and understood dearly. Lord, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. And so this is my plan for this mini-series this morning. Uh, today I want us to think about theological or biblical reasons for why we need to be intentional in terms of evangelism and witness. And next week we're going to be thinking about practical things, practical ways how to become more effective and fruitful in our witness. And so in summary, this week we're considering the Bible and next week practical. All right, all good? That's the plan. Let's jump in. We're going to turn, obviously, to this pivotal text, and I want us to think about four theological realities um, that will help us become more intentional witnesses for Christ. And so here's the first one, the human condition. 
That is, if we're going to be intentional about loving others and sharing our faith with others, we need to understand what the Bible teaches about the human condition. Now, when I say human condition, I'm thinking here about the human spiritual condition, not their social condition or psychological, emotional condition, but their spiritual condition. Here in the opening three verses of our text, uh, Paul tells us two devastating things, confronting things, but realistic things, about the human state outside of God. First, he says that the human condition is one of deadness, without Jesus. One of deadness, he says in in verse 1, as for you, some of you, you're, you're dead. And that's not a figure of speech there when he says dead. He means that people, God is really dead to them. They don't know his goodness. They don't know his grace within. And notice he links and traces this state of deadness to two things. Firstly, to transgressions and then sin. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, we don't use these terms often in our day-to-day lives, do we? Like, you've just transgressed against me. So what, what does this term mean? Well, to transgress means to violate a known boundary. It means to violate a known boundary. So you're walking along and you see that sign that says, please don't step on the grass. And you step on the grass. That's to transgress. Or, I know none of you actually do that, but what about this one? You're driving along and you hear, and you reach for your phone while driving. Yeah, but I only text while I'm at the traffic lights. That's still a violation of a known human law and boundary. That's what it means to transgress. Now, Breaking and violating human laws and commands is one thing, but transgressing God's sacred holy law is something else entirely. And so when God says, don't gossip, because gossip ruins relationships and it mars my good creation, and we, we do, that's to transgress God's holy law. When we give in to anger, when he says, don't give in to anger, or don't give in to greed, and we do, that's to transgress God's holy law. And it places people and us before we came to Christ in this state of deadness, which is a state of guilt and condemnation in the presence of God. And, and, and so Paul says, this is what transgression is. It's, it's violating this known boundary. Now, he continues and said that this state of deadness is also connected to sin. He says, dead in your trespasses and sin. So what, what does it actually mean to sin here? Well, if transgression means to overstep a boundary, God's boundary, to sin is to understep is to fail to measure up to God's standards. That's what sin is. And what is the standard? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22. He says that the great standard is the great commandment, which is to love God with every fiber of your being, to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then flying out of that, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, hands up if you've actually fulfilled this standard. See, I knew that was going to happen, right? We're all being honest with ourselves today and each other. None of us have kept up to God's standards. None of us have fulfilled it. And and the reason why we don't love God with every fiber of our being is because if we're being honest, we love other things more than Him. Right? We love other things more than Him. We love our work more than Him. We may pay lip service to God. We may say, yeah, I love But really, we love our career because of the security it brings or the money or the possessions it brings or we love our family or we love other things more than him the Bible says that's sin because God created us to love him supremely so that we could actually love everything in their rightful order in their rightful place 
But if we take a created thing and actually place that in the position of God, there's chaos in our lives. There's misery and brokenness in humanity. And so this is actually what sin is. And so sin, broader sense of sin, is not only doing bad things, that's transgression, it's also doing good things or wanting to do good things too badly. That's what sin is. Not only doing bad things, but doing good things or wanting them too badly. That's in essence what sin is and these things bring slavery and imprisonment. And so this is the first thing that Paul tells us about the human condition. It's this state of deadness, but the plot thickens here. He continues and says that not only is the human condition one of deadness, it's also one of bondage. It's one of captivity. It's one of slavery. Again, verses 2 and 3, he highlights three areas of enslavement. He says, first, that we, before we came to Christ, and human beings outside of Jesus, are slaves to the world. He says, as for you, you are dead in your transgression sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world. Now, when he says world, he doesn't mean planet Earth. He's not talking about the world in that sense. He's talking about a worldview or a world system that has values that are out of tune with God's heart, with God's values, out of step with his ways of doing things, his ways of thinking. And Paul says that everyone outside of Christ is following the ways of this world. That's striking language that he uses when he says follows. It's actually an image of slavery. Hands up if you've seen Ben-Hur. Yeah, it's a silly question. All of us have seen Ben-Hur, maybe more than once. What about Gladiator? Gladiator is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, a bit gruesome, but still my favorite movie. And maybe you're familiar with the scene, the slavery scene. And so Maximus, he's picked up, and he's made a slave, and he's being dragged along in the kind of wilderness, and he's chained, his ankles are chained to the prisoner in front of him, and he's just shuffling along, following, following, following his slave traders. That's the idea here that Paul presents to us. That the human condition is one of being slaves to this world system, being conformed to its views and desires and the pattern of its, you know, thinking of its patterns, and, and which is out of kilter and out of step with God's. He continues. He says, not only, I know this is a very encouraging sermon so far, it gets better, I promise you. He goes on and says that humans are not only held captive to the ways of this world, this world system, but also to the, the devil. In verse 2, he calls the devil the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, clearly this is a reference to Satan, but at this point, a lot of people in our culture begin to struggle. They begin to struggle. They go, okay, up until this point, you know, the, what the Bible says about the human condition, them being selfish and sinful, and that's why there's corruption and misery in the world. Yeah, I, 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 I accept that in part, but believing in a literal devil, <laughs> that just takes the biscuit. I'm, I'm kind of out of here. I'm, I don't buy into that. You know, the Sydney Morning Herald back in 2009, they ran an article entitled, Faith, What Australians Believe In. And in that article, it mentions that back in 1983, 45% of Australians believed in the devil, the literal existence of the devil. When they put out the article in 2009, that percentage had gone down to 36%. And it's my guess that today it's a lot lower. And yet the Bible unashamedly claims that, the, uh, that Satan does exist. And not only does he exist, but that you can finally trace all error and all evil and all violence back to him. 
that, that he is the conductor pulling the strings of this world system that's opposed to God. And this is what Paul means when he says that he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He doesn't mean that the devil is some red-faced dude with horns kind of holding a pitchfork. But the word can be translated atmosphere. That is, he's the lord of the underworld. He brings about, he inspires every anti-God worldview and every anti-God organization, every anti-God movement. You can finally trace it back to him. And Paul says that we were held captive to his power. That's why he says the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were influenced by him in some way. He continues... He says, not only uh, is the human condition one of enslavement to the world and, and, and to the, you know, the prince of the power of the air, but also the flesh. The flesh, he says in verse 3. You know, we're all governed by the flesh, following its cravings. Now again, this, this needs clarification. When he says flesh, he's not talking about skin. Not talking about skin. He's not talking about the living fabric that clothes our bones. All right. He's talking about sin. Just take away the K. Not skin, but sin. He's thinking about here the human self-centeredness that gives rise to these desires that are out of tune with God. Uh, these thoughts and these actions that are not pleasing to God. And, and, and he says that every human being outside of Jesus, this was us before coming to Christ, we were bound by these three enemies, as you were. This world system, the devil who pulled the strings of this world system, and also our own hearts, our own corrupt hearts. So this is really what the Bible says about the human condition. It's one of deadness and one of enslavement. Now, the important thing for us as Christians to realize is that this is the true human state. This is the true human condition. If for a moment we think humans are generally okay, it's likely that we won't be deliberate in loving people, coming alongside people in the name of Jesus to actually witness. If we think, you know, they don't really need that much help, then we won't really help them. You see what I'm saying? And so this is pivotal, understanding the human condition. Number two, in addition to this, we need to believe and accept what the Bible tells us about the wrath of God about the wrath of God. In verse 3, we're told that the consequence for human sin is wrath. He says, by nature deserving of wrath. Now, when he mentions wrath there, he's not talking about human anger or the wrath of the state. He's talking about God's wrath, that because God is this holy God, he's opposed to human sin. And again, this is where a lot of people in our culture, they begin to backpedal and they struggle. I remember uh, one of the very first sermons I ever preached here at PCC some 17 years ago. I was 22 and I was preaching and I decided to preach on the wrath of God. As you do. Now it's my second sermon in, the wrath of God. And I was going for it, trying to describe what the wrath of God you know, was. And, and this guy, this dude at the back, he's not here at the church, so I can share this. He was doing this. As I was preaching, he was going, oh. I was preaching, he was going, mm-hmm. like thoroughly, violently almost, in disagree, you know, disagreeing with, with what I was trying to say. And a lot of people in our culture, when they hear Christians, you even, talk about the wrath of God, they may not externally do this. But internally, like, no, no, I'm struggling, struggling. And do you know why they struggle? Because they want a God of love. <laughs> they want a God of love. And, and don't we all want a God of love, don't we? Well, here's the good news. The Bible says more than once that God is love. And the issue that people have in our culture is that they can't reconcile these two things. How can God be a God of love? He's supposed to love and be merciful and forgive people. How can that be true and God being a wrath of God be true as well? 
How can he be wrath and how can he be wrathful and angry and judgmental? How can he be a God of love as well? How do these things come together? But I want to show you in the text that these things came together perfectly in the mind of the Apostle Paul. Because at the end of verse 3, he talks about God's wrath. And then immediately, verse 4, he jumps into, but because of his great love for us, this God who is rich in mercy. And so clearly, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the wrath of God and the love of God were not mutually exclusive. Not contradictory, they come together, they came together for him. And so the big question, and there's a huge question mark on your screen, because this is a pressing question, is then how should we understand the wrath of God? How should we understand it? And for some of you here, this is going to be news to you, good news. Listen, the wrath of God is not God exploding on people, like losing his rag, losing his temper, kind of violently, maliciously, just, you know, like Zeus, the god Zeus. That's not the wrath of God. That may be the wrath of your neighbor or the wrath of your colleague, but it's not the wrath of of God. That's not what it means. Also, in addition, the wrath of God is not God maliciously delighting in chucking sinners into the flames of hell. Like, come on, angels, let's have a, a party, or we just chuck that rebel into hell. That's not the way the Bible depicts the wrath of God. In fact, what we see in the Bible is the, the opposite. God says um, in, in the prophet uh, Ezekiel, in that book, he says, three times, I take no delight in the judgment of the wicked. Take no del-. And then he goes on to state what his delight actually is. He says, oh, my delight is that they will actually see the error of their ways, that they would realize that they are transgressors and sinners and actually turn to me to experience life. That's God's desire. That's his pleasure. And so it's not about God joyfully chucking people into hell. And so the question remains, what is it? What is the wrath of God? Well, here's a definition. God's wrath is this. It's his settled, and I've added loving, settled and loving opposition to the evil that's ruining his creation. That's what it is. It's his settled, loving opposition to the evil that's ruining his creation. You see, all loving people Follow along with me here. This is really important. All loving people are sometimes angry, are sometimes filled with anger. And, and sometimes their anger, and let's be personal, make it personal here, our anger is not instead of our love, but because of our love. Here's an example for you. You love someone with all your heart. You love someone dearly. And when you see that loved one ruined by someone else, or even by their own unwise behavior, you get angry. Don't you? If we, if, we, if we didn't, that would be indifference. That wouldn't be love. In fact, the more you love, the more intense your love is for someone, the more anger you experience when you see their lives ruined. Now, apply this to God. The Bible says that God's love for his creation is infinite, which means when he sees his creation ruined by human sinfulness, your sinfulness... Your selfishness, my selfishness, his anger is infinite as well. Now you know why hell is forever. In her book entitled Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippitt says this about the wrath of God. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, what is the cancer? It's human selfishness, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. That's what the wrath of God is. 
And so, as we're going to see, God's desire, and it's a strong eternal desire, is to save people, to rescue people. But being the God he is, committed to justice, committed to what's right, he will eradicate all human selfishness. And Jesus says that if people don't actually come to him and believe him, don't receive his love, they actually remain under the wrath of God. Again, church. We've got to be aware of this. We've got to receive this, accept this. If we're going to be intentional witnesses, they're under the wrath of God. And they need us. Now let's continue. Here's the good news. I said there will be good news. Next five minutes, we're going to fly through. We also, if we're going to be intentional witnesses, need to believe in not only the holiness of God, but also the goodness of God. The goodness of God. You see, how much ink does the Apostle Paul spill describing and explaining the wrath of God? Just a little, but from verse 4 onwards, it's all about this rich, benevolent God. For example, he says in verse 4, but here's the focus, because of his not little love, but great love. Great love. Do you know the love of God? Do you understand? Do you, have you experienced the great love of God? He goes on at the end of verse 4. He talks about God being rich in mercy. Note that. Not rich in fury, but rich in mercy. Verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved. What is God's grace? It's his rich benevolence. It's his goodness towards those who are bad. Who deserve nothing but hell, but he extends grace. And he tells us what that grace actually looks like in verse 7. Because he says, the incomparable riches. You can't compare, you can't measure God's love. Of his grace, he says, expressed where? In his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is what Christianity is about. It's about God's goodness. And for some of you, this might be news for you. Maybe you've you know, grown up in a church tradition, as I did, thinking you know, that Christianity is about appeasing this angry God. Here's the good news. His anger has already been appeased by Jesus. He took the wrath of God. He absorbed the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to encounter it, face it, experience it for all eternity. So Christianity is not about sin. Final analysis. Christianity is not about sin. It's about this good God in his son, Jesus Christ, overcoming sin and offering forgiveness of sin to a guilty people. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That's the essence of Christianity. And I encourage you, all of us here today, to embrace this Savior, to embrace this God. And, and just, you know, we're thinking about being intentional witnesses. Church, we must know this, but we must experience this goodness of God. You know, without this experience, you may be a witness, but you're going to be a lousy one. If you've not experienced the goodness of God, you won't be gentle, you won't be sensitive, you won't be respectful. You know, you might be one of those who have those placards turn and burn, but you won't be a compassionate, gentle Christian in your witness without experiencing the love of God. Lastly, how does God do it? We've been thinking about, we've got to understand the human condition. We've got to understand that he is a God of justice, holiness, now that flows wrath. Also, we've been thinking about God being good, but, but how does he actually bring about someone's rescue? How does he rescue people? And, 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 and what part do we play in that process? Well, we're told in verse 10 of our text these words. He says that, where am I? Here we go. For we are God's handiwork. So that he's doing the initiative, the initiating here. Created, that's a key word, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now, when he says created, he's talking about the experience of recreation. 
Regeneration, which is just a fancy term for being born again. All right, there's nothing weird or wacky about that term, being born again. Uh, it's just God bringing life to us. We were dead, we're told in verse 5, and yet he made us alive. Verse 6, you know, he raised us up. We experienced this life in Christ, and yet the question remains, yeah, 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 but how does he do that? How does this experience come about? Well, let's transgress this morning. Okay, let's violate a known boundary of our text and go back to chapter 1. Verse 13. This is what we read. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Here's the process. You ready for it? He says, And you also were included in Christ. Included means you're born again. Born again. Regenerated. When, here's step number one, you heard the message of truth. What's that? Well, he unpacks that. The gospel of your salvation. And so that's step one in the process of how God rescues. It's, it's through the proclamation of this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Step two, listen. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And so he mentions there two things, experiencing the Holy Spirit. But that came about because the person actually believed. We believed in the message of salvation. And so the point is, there can't be an experience of God's goodness, the goodness of God, without actually first hearing the gospel of God. No, no one will experience the goodness of God without first hearing the gospel of God. That's just, just the way it is. And, and yet no one can hear the gospel of God unless actually someone tells them the gospel. And that's where we come in. You know, it's one thing to come alongside people and love people, and we need to do that. That kindness and that charity build plausibility structures for the gospel. But somewhere down the track, down the line, we actually need to verbalize it. Because the power of God is where? Invested where? In the gospel. The vehicle is the, is the gospel. The, the gospel is like red blood cells. You know, the red blood cells in our body, they carry oxygen that bring life to our bodies. Well, the gospel is the ultimate red blood cell. It carries the oxygen of God's saving love. And if we don't proclaim it, no, one are going to, no one's going to hear, no one's going to believe, no one's going to experience God's love. And so these four things, church, we need to believe with all our hearts and receive about the human condition, about God's wrath. That's a reality. But he's good. He's good. He's not content with people remaining under his wrath. That's why Christ came. We're told in the Bible he delivers us from the wrath to come. And, and, and how do people actually encounter all this? Through the proclamation. Romans 1.16 is the power of God for salvation. How about we stand, church? Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your goodness and your mercy. Lord, your goodness shines all the more on the backdrop, the black backdrop of our own fallen human state and condition, our own depravity, our own corruption. And Lord God, you want to rescue, and we're so grateful that you have reached down in Christ to actually rescue us. And so I pray, make us aware of these pivotal things that we've considered this morning so that we will be more intentional in terms of the way we come alongside others to tell them about you, Lord God. Also, if there are those here today who have, you know, listening to me preach and your word and they've still got questions, maybe they don't 
completely agree. That's okay, Lord. I pray that um, you would help them as they journey on, Lord, that you would help them see and encounter and experience your incredible love in Jesus. And, and then these other things may make more sense to yes. them, Lord, after they encounter you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, as we do every week, if you'd like prayer for anything, don't hesitate to come forward. As you know, there's, um, there's stuff happening next door now, um, so we can dismiss the service. But again, if you'd like prayer, don't hesitate. We'd love to stand with you and pray for you. If you have questions, you want to talk to me about anything relating to the sermon, please come. I'd love to sit down with you and have a conversation. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church Podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.